Chapter 5, Part 1 of How to Write Short Stories with Examples by Ring Lardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Chapter 5, Champion, Part 1. An example of the mystery story. The mystery is how it came to get printed. Mitch Kelly scored his first knockout when he was 17. The knockee was his brother, Connie, three years his junior and a cripple. The purse was a half dollar given to the younger Kelly by a lady whose electric had just missed bumping his soul from his frail little body. Connie did not know Mitch was in the house, else he never would have risked laying the prize on the arm of the least comfortable chair in the room, the better to observe its shining beauty. As Midge entered from the kitchen, the crippled boy covered the coin with his hand, but the movement lacked the speed requisite to escape his brother's quick eye. "'What you got there?' demanded Midge. "'Nothing,' said Connie. "'You're a one-legged liar,' said Midge. He strode over to his brother's chair and grasped the hand that concealed the coin. "'Let loose,' he ordered. Connie began to cry. "'Let loose and shut up your noise,' said the elder and jerked his brother's hand from the chair arm. The coin fell onto the bare floor. Midge pounced on it. His weak mouth widened in a triumphant smile. Nothing, huh, he said. All right, if it's nothing, you don't want it. Give that back, sobbed the younger. I'll give you a red nose, you little sneak. Where'd you steal it? I didn't steal it. It's mine. A lady gave it to me after she pretty near hit me with a car. It's a crime she missed you, said Midge. Midge started for the front door. The cripple picked up his crutch, rose from his chair with difficulty, and, still sobbing, came toward Midge. The latter heard him and stopped. You better stay where you're at, he said. I want my money, cried the boy. I know what you want, said Midge. Doubling up the fist that held the half dollar, he landed with all his strength on his brother's mouth. Connie fell to the floor with a thud, the crutch tumbling on top of him. Midge stood beside the prostrate form. Is that enough? he said. Or do you want this too? And he kicked him in the crippled leg. I guess that'll hold you, he said. There was no response from the boy on the floor. Midge looked at him a moment, then at the coin in his hand, and then went out into the street, whistling. An hour later, when Mrs. Kelly came home from her day's work at Faulkner's steam laundry, she found Connie on the floor, moaning. Dropping on her knees beside him, she called him by name a score of times. Then she got up and, pale as a ghost, dashed from the house. Dr. Ryan left the Kelly abode about dusk and walked toward Halstead Street. Mrs. Dorgan spied him as he passed her gate. "'Who's sick, doctor?' she called. "'Poor little Connie!' he replied. He had a bad fall. How did it happen? I can't say for sure, Margaret, but I'd almost bet he was knocked down. Knocked down? exclaimed Mrs. Dorgan. Why, who? Have you seen the other one lately? Michael, not since morning. You can't be thinking. I wouldn't put it past him, Margaret, said the doctor gravely. The lad's mouth is swollen and cut, and his poor skinny little leg is bruised. He surely didn't do it to himself, and I think Helen suspects the other one. Lord, save us, said Mrs. Dorgan. I'll run over and see if I can help. That's a good woman, 
said Dr. Ryan, and went on down the street. Near midnight, when Midge came home, his mother was sitting at Connie's bedside. She did not look up. Well, said Midge, what's the matter? She remained silent. Midge repeated his question. Michael, you know what's the matter, she said at length. I don't know nothing, said Midge. Don't lie to me, Michael. What did you do to your brother? Nothing. You hit him. Well then, I hit him. What of it? It ain't the first time. Her lips pressed tightly together, her face like chalk. Ellen Kelly rose from her chair and made straight for him. Midge backed against the door. Lay off me, Ma. I don't want to fight no woman. Still she came on, breathing heavily. Stop where you're at, Ma, he warned. There was a brief struggle, and Midge's mother lay on the floor before him. You ain't hurt, Ma. You're lucky I didn't land good, and I told you to lay off on me. God forgive you, Michael. Midge found Hap Collins in the showdown game at the Royal. Come on out a minute, he said. Hap followed him out on the walk. I'm leaving town for a while, said Midge. What for? Well, I had a little run-in up to the house. The kid stole a half-buck off me, and when I went after it he cracked me with his crutch, so I nailed him, and the old lady came at me with a chair, so I took it off on her and she fell down. How is Connie hurt? Not bad. What are you running away for? Who the hell said I was running away? I'm sick and tired of getting picked on, that's all, so I'm leaving for a while and I want a piece of money. I ain't only got six bits, said Happy. You're in bad shape, aren't you? Well, come through with it. Happy came through. You oughtn't to hit the kid, he said. I ain't asking you who I can hit, snarled Midge. You try to put something over on me and you'll get the same dose. I'm going now. Go as far as you like, said Happy, but not until he was sure that Kelly was out of hearing. Early the following morning, Midge boarded a train for Milwaukee. He had no ticket, but no one knew the difference. The conductor remained in the caboose. On a night six months later, Midge hurried out of the stage door of the Star Boxing Club and made for Duane's Saloon, two blocks away. In his pocket were twelve dollars, his reward for having battered up one Demon Dempsey through the six rounds of the first preliminary. It was Midge's first professional engagement in the manly art. Also, it was the first time in weeks that he had earned twelve dollars. On the way to Duane's, he had to pass Nyman's. He pulled his cap over his eyes and increased his pace until he had gone by. Inside Nyman's stood a trusting bartender, who for ten days had staked Midge to drinks and allowed him to ravage the lunch on a promise to come in and settle the moment he was paid for the prelim. Midge strode into Duane's and aroused the napping bartender by slapping a silver dollar on the festive board. Give me a shot, said Midge. The shooting continued until the wind-up at the star was over and part of the fight crowd joined Midge in front of Duane's bar. A youth in the early twenties, standing next to young Kelly, finally summoned sufficient courage to address him. Wasn't that you in the first bout? he ventured. Yeah. Midge replied. My name's Hirsch, said the other. Midge received the startling information in silence. I don't want to butt in, continued Mr. Hirsch, but I'd like to buy you a drink. 
All right, said Midge, but don't overstrain yourself. Mr. Hirsch laughed uproariously and beckoned to the bartender. You certainly give that whop a trimming tonight, said the buyer of the drink when they had been served. I thought you'd killed him. I would if I hadn't let up, Midge replied. I'll kill them all. You got the wallop all right, the other said admiringly. Have I got the wallop, said Midge. Say, I could kick like a mule. Did you notice their muscles in my shoulders? Notice them? I couldn't help from noticing them, said Hirsch. I says to the fella sitting alongside of me, I says, look at them shoulders. No wonder he can hit, I says to him. Just let me land and it's goodbye, baby, said Midge. I'll kill them all. The oral manslaughter continued until Duane's closed for the night. At parting, Midge and his new friend shook hands and arranged for a meeting the following evening. For nearly a week, the two were together almost constantly. It was Hirsch's pleasant role to listen to Midge's modest revelations concerning himself and to buy every time Midge's glass was empty. But there came an evening when Hirsch regretfully announced that he must go home to supper. I got a date for eight bells, he confided. I could stick till then, only I must clean up and put on the Sunday clothes, cause she's the prettiest little thing in Milwaukee. Can't you fix it for two? asked Midge. I don't know who to get, Hirsch replied. Wait, though, I've got a sister, and if she ain't busy, it'll be okay. She's no bum for looks herself. So it came about that Midge and Emma Hirsch, and Emma's brother, and the prettiest little thing in Milwaukee, Forgathered at walls and danced half the night away, and Mitch and Emma danced every dance together, for though every little one-step seemed to induce a new thirst of its own, Lou Hirsch stayed too sober to dance with his own sister. The next day, penniless at last, in spite of his phenomenal ability to make someone else settle, Mitch Kelly sought out Doc Hammond, matchmaker for the star, and asked to be booked for the next show. I could put you on with Tracy for the next bout, said Doc. What's they in it? asked Midge. Twenty if you cop, Doc told him. Have a heart, protested Midge. Didn't I look good the other night? You looked all right, but you aren't Freddie Welsh yet by a considerable margin. I ain't scared of Freddie Welsh or none of em, said Midge. Well, we don't pay our boxers by the size of their chests, Doc said. I'm offering you this Tracy bout. Take it or leave it. All right, I'm on, said Midge, and he passed a pleasant afternoon at Duane's on the strength of his booking. Young Tracy's manager came to Midge the night before the show. How do you feel about this go? he asked. Me, said Midge. I feel all right. What do you mean, how do I feel? I mean, said Tracy's manager, that we're mighty anxious to win because the boy's got a chance in Philly if he cops this one. What's your proposition? asked Midge. Fifty bucks, said Tracy's manager. What do you think I am, a crook? Me lay down for fifty bucks, not me. Seventy-five, then, said Tracy's manager. The market closed on eighty, and the details were agreed on in short order, and the next night Midge was stopped in the second round by a terrific slap on the forearm. This time Midge passed up both Nyman's and Duane's, having a sizable account at each place, and sought his refreshment at Stein's farther down the street. When the profits of his deal with Tracy were gone, he learned, by first-hand information from Doc Hammond, 
and the matchmakers at the other clubs that he was no longer desired for even the cheapest of preliminaries. There was no danger of his starving or dying of thirst while Emma and Lou Hirsch lived. But he made up his mind four months after his defeat by young Tracy that Milwaukee was not the ideal place for him to live. I can lick the best of them, he reasoned, but there ain't no more chance for me here. I can maybe go east and get on somewheres, and besides, but just after Midge had purchased a ticket to Chicago with money he had borrowed from Emma Hirsch to buy shoes, a heavy hand was laid on his shoulders, and he turned to face two strangers. Where are you going, Kelly? inquired the owner of the heavy hand. Nowheres, said Midge. What the hell do you care? The other stranger spoke. Kelly, I'm employed by Emma Hirsch's mother to see that you do right by her, and we want you to stay here till you've done it. You won't get nothing but the worst of it, monkeying with me, said Midge. Nevertheless, he did not depart for Chicago that night. Two days later, Emma Hirsch became Mrs. Kelly, and the gift of the groom, when once they were alone, was a crushing blow on the bride's pale cheek. Next morning, Midge left Milwaukee as he had entered it, by fast freight. "'There's no use kidding ourselves any more,' said Tommy Haley. "'He might get down to thirty-seven in a pinch, but if he done below that a mouse could stop him. "'He's a welter. That's what he is, and he knows it as well as I do. "'He's growed like a weed in the last six months. "'I told him,' I says, "'if you don't quit growing, they won't be nobody for you to box, only Willard in them.' He says, well, I wouldn't run away from Willard if I weighed twenty pounds more. He must hate himself, said Tommy's brother. I never seen a good one that didn't, said Tommy. And Midge is a good one. Don't make no mistake about it. I wish we could have got Welsh before the kid growed so big. But it's too late now. I won't make no holler, though, if we can match him up with a Dutchman. Who do you mean? Young Goats, the welter champ. We might not get so much dough for the bout itself, but I'd roll in afterward. What a drawing card we'd be, because the people pays their money to see the fellow with the wallop, and that's Midge, and we'd keep the title just as long as Midge could make the weight. Can't you land no match with goats? Sure, cause he needs the money, but I won't careful with the kid so far, and look at the results I got. So what's the use of taking a chance? The kid's coming every minute, and goats is going back faster than Big Johnson did. I think we could lick him now. I'd bet my life on it. But six months from now and there won't be no risk. He'll have licked himself before that time. Then all we have to do is sign up with him and wait for the referee to stop it. But Midge is so crazy to get at him now that I can hardly hold him back. The brothers Haley were lunching in a Boston hotel. Dan had come down from Hollyoke to visit with Tommy and to watch the latter's protégé go twelve rounds or less with Bud Cross. The bout promised little in the way of a contest, for Midge had twice stopped the Baltimore youth, and Bud's reputation for gameness was all that had earned him the date. The fans were willing to pay the price to see Midge's haymaking left, but they wanted to see it used on an opponent who would not jump out of the ring the first time he felt its crushing force. But Cross was such an opponent, and his willingness to stop boxing gloves with his eyes, ears, nose and throat had long enabled him to escape the horrors of honest labour. A game boy was Bud, and he showed it in his battered, swollen, discoloured face. I should think, said Dan Haley, 
that the kid'll do whatever you tell him after all you've done for him. Well, said Tommy, he's took my dope pretty straight so far, but he's so sure of himself that he can't see no reason for waiting. He'll do what I say, though. He'd be a sucker not to. You got a contract with him? No, I don't need no contract. He knows it was me that drug him out of the gutter, and he ain't going to turn me down now when he's got the dough and bound to get more. Where'd he have been if I hadn't listened to him when he first came to me? That's pretty near two years ago now, but it seems like last week. I was setting in the saloon room across from Pleasant Club and the filly, waiting for McCann to count the dough and come over, when this little bum blowed in and tried to stand the house off for a drink. They told him nothing doing, and to beat it out of there. Then he seen me, and come over to where I was setting, and asked me wasn't I a boxing man, and I told him who I was. Then he asked me for money to buy a shot, and I told him to set down, and I'd buy it for him. Then we got to talking things over, and he told me his name, and told me about fighting a couple of prelims out to Milwaukee. So I says, well boy, I don't know how good or how rotten you are, but you won't never get nowhere's training on that stuff. So he says he'd cut it out if he'd get on in about, and I says I would give him a chance if he played square with me and didn't touch no more to drink. So we shook hands and I took him up to the hotel with me and gave him a bath, and the next day I brought him some clothes and I staked him to eats and sleeps for over six weeks. He had a hard time breaking away from the polish, but finally I thought he was fit, and I gave him his chance. He went on with Smiley Sayer, and stopped him so quick that Smiley thought sure he was poisoned. Well, you know what he's did since. The only beating in his record was by Tracy in Milwaukee before I got hold of him, and he's licked Tracy three times in the last year. I gave him all the best of it in a money way, and he's got 7,000 bucks in cold storage. How's that for a kid that was in the gutter two years ago? And he'd have still more yet if he wasn't so nuts over clothes, and got to stop at the good hotels and so forth. Where's his home at? Well, he ain't really got no home. He came from Chicago, and his mother canned him out of the house for being no good. She gave him a raw deal, I guess, and he says he won't have nothing to do with her unless she comes to him first. She's got a pile of money, he says, so he ain't worrying about her. The gentleman under discussion entered the cafe and swaggered to Tommy's table, while the whole room turned to look. Mitch was the picture of health, despite a slightly coloured eye and an ear that seemed to have no opening. But perhaps it was not his healthiness that drew all eyes. His diamond horseshoe tie-pin, his purple cross-striped shirt, his orange shoes and his light blue suit fairly screamed for attention. "'Where have you been?' he asked Tommy. "'I've been looking all over for you.' "'Set down,' said his manager. "'No time,' said Midge. I'm going down to the wharf to see him unload the fish. Shake hands with my brother, Dan, said Tommy. Mitch shook with the holly oak Haley. If you're Tommy's brother, you're okay with me, said Midge, and the brothers beamed with pleasure. Dan moistened his lips and murmured an embarrassed reply, but it was lost on the young gladiator. Leave me take twenty, Midge was saying. I probably won't need it, but I don't like to be caught short. Tommy parted with a twenty-dollar bill and recorded the transaction in a small black book the insurance company had given him for Christmas. But, he said, it won't cost you no twenty to look at them fish. Want me to go along? No, said Midge hastily. You and your brother here probably got a lot more to say to each other. Well, said Tommy, don't take no bad money and don't get lost. 
and you'd better be back at four o'clock and lay down a while. I don't need no rest to beat this guy, said Midge. He'll do enough laying down for the both of us, and laughing even more than the jest called for, he strode out through the fire of admiring and startled glances. The corner of Boylston and Tremont was the nearest Midge got to the wharf, but the lady awaiting him was doubtless a more dazzling sight than the catch of the luckiest Massachusetts fisherman. She could talk to, probably better than the fish. "'Oh, you kid!' she said, flashing a few silver teeth among the gold. "'Oh, you fighting man!' Midge smiled up at her. "'We'll go somewheres and get a drink,' he said. "'One won't hurt.' End of chapter 5, part 1, Champion